Welcome to Grapevine, the podcast where we untangle the stories that shape private and public discourse. I'm Jasmine Hall. I teach courses in literature, film, and other storytelling media at Elms College. And this is my co-host, William Wright, a freelance storyteller. We share an interest in uncovering the often surprising ways in which human perceptions are influenced by the stories we hear. In this episode, we're going to focus on narratives pertaining to Syria and the Middle East more generally. You know, Jazz, we probably should let people know here that uh, the, the inspiration of this show is uh, sort of the weekly uh, world uh, issues meetings we used to have uh, on Skype. <laughs> yes, yeah. And uh, these, are the, these are the kinds of things, the, th- the things that we're going to talk about in this show are the kinds of things we used to talk about. And as you pointed out, um, our main um, interest in all this was the stories that people tell and how they sort of uh, inform how they make decisions and, and how they see, you know, the other and, and all of these things. And I'm really excited uh, for the chance for us to do this uh, uh, show, and I'm, I'm glad that um, we finally are able to get it done. Yeah, me too. I, I think about these things a lot when I'm teaching, but also just reading the newspaper or reading blog sites. I, I think about the way in which various ways of telling stories, um, people get so used to them and to kind of jar them out of it by looking at things from a slightly different perspective. Yeah, that's the great thing, actually, about this reality of human experience, the fact that everything is a story to us. Even our perceptions are a story our brain is telling us about the world. Uh, it, sometimes those stories can, can get us in a rut, but but the the good side, the, the bright side of that coin is that um, we can think of new stories, or right. we can hear a story. We can hear a story in a different way than we heard it before. Yeah, yeah, we're the ones so, who are constructing it. So that's right. That's right. So um, I hope uh, you, the listener, I hope uh, these conversations are as interesting to you as they've been for us in the last several years. I guess that's kind of the point of us doing this. But as Jazz uh, said, we're going to be focusing on the Middle East. We're going to say a lot about Syria. Obviously, uh, Syria has been in the news lately, and that's one of uh, the reasons that we've decided to, to make our first episode be something as, as huge and, and uh, complicated as the Middle East. Uh, also, Jazz is a little bit crazy. Um, I don't know. <laughs> she, she's just a mad woman. I mean, you know, well, gee, Jazz, what do you want the first episode to be? How about the Middle East? Whoa, okay. <laughs> Well, I had this I had this uh, strange coincidence that I was reading this book about uh, Lawrence uh, of Arabia, T. E. Lawrence, when all the news about um, Syria broke, and it was it was just strange that I was reading this history that was set in Syria, and I started seeing all these connections to between what I was reading and the kinds of things that were coming out in the news. Ah, connections. That's yes, another yes. important theme in uh, these types of conversations. Well, um, I guess uh, where we should start a discussion about uh, narratives and stories uh, that we have, about, especially about the Middle East, is uh, to try to get a handle on what the uh, kind of the prevailing narrative is right now, uh, especially in the West. And uh, to that end... Um, Jazz and I did uh, quite a bit of research uh, for this show, and um, we picked the uh, 
Pew Research Global Attitudes Project report entitled Muslim Western Tensions Persist, Common Concerns About Islamic Extremism, and that was published in July of 2011. And we're using this as sort of a, 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 a jump-off point for talking about these narratives, trying to get a handle on what people think about the Middle East uh, now. And the interesting thing that uh, uh, Jazz noticed right away and pointed out was uh, that uh, there are a lot of things just suggested by the title uh, of the paper. Uh, right, Jazz? Yeah, because uh, it says Muslims versus Western. Um, <laughs> what's the? I forget what the rest of the title is. Yeah, but, Muslim Western that, tension persists. Yeah. Yeah, um, and those two designations, Muslim is a religion and, and Western is a geographical location. So the yeah. two things are not at all parallel, but it shows the way in which, it, it shows that the the report itself has a Western perspective because it is looking at the Middle East through a primarily religious lens um, and grouping the whole Middle East, but saying that's the most dominant uh, factor, whereas Christianity is not the most dominant factor in the West, and um, it's also grouping all Muslims together as if all Muslims have the same set of beliefs, and it's ignoring um, sectarian divisions between Sunni or Shiite or Alawite. Um, right, so you can see the power of the narrative already imposing itself. <laughs> onto the uh, consciousness of the people who prepared the uh, the uh, report and also, of course, uh, subsequently on on us, the people who are reading the report. Right. It, it does actually remind me of, of one thing, one point from the Lawrence in Arabia book. And the, the book, by the way, is by Scott Anderson, Lawrence in Arabia, uh, War, Deceit, Imperial Folly, and the Making of the Modern Middle East. And he mentions that in preparing for um, the Iraq War, David Petraeus told uh, everyone on his senior staff to read um, T.E. Lawrence's 27 articles so that they would know how to deal with the Iraqi population. And Lawrence there talks about how to deal with Bedouins, um, but Anderson points out that 98% of Iraqis aren't Bedouin. <laughs> Well, so that wasn't very good advice, I guess. <laughs> no, I mean, at least I think, um, at least Petraeus is trying to think about how am I going to uh, adapt to this other area, this other culture, but he's he's doing that same thing of grouping everyone into uh, one unified um, category, which actually right. I, I was telling you before we started the, the podcast that I kept realizing that I do that quite often too, because I I was a lot of my preconceptions were um, running up against uh, historical contradictions in this book, and that we're going to be talking a lot about that as we as we go on. But getting back to the report. Um, uh, the data in uh, in that Pew Research report also suggests that um, the Middle East is largely perceived by the West as being a troubled region whose failures are ultimately its own fault. Um, the governments are corrupt. The people are undereducated. Um, the uh, 
the people in the Middle East seem unable on their own to establish better, and by better we mean democratic, forms of government. Uh, and violence and fanaticism are regarded as strong defining characteristics uh, of the region. Now, um, according to the report, a significant portion of Westerners cite Islamic extremism as a root cause of Middle Eastern problems. And uh, I calculated that one-third of U.S. respondents believed that uh, some religions are more violent than others, and that Islam specifically is the most violent major religion. But that said, the majority of Western respondents actually did not hang all the blame on Islamic extremists. It was actually uh, a rather small number. But even considering that, nearly half of the surveyed Westerners believe that the Middle Eastern countries are mostly to blame for Middle Eastern problems. So the logical implication is that whatever these Westerners think are the causes of Middle Eastern problems, those causes are somehow tied to Arab or Muslim identity. And at, at the same time, Muslims overwhelmingly perceive that Western cultures are hostile towards them. Now, interestingly, uh, Muslims in Muslim-majority countries, according to the report, seem to agree that their region could be more prosperous and that the answer does lie in less corruption, more education, and more democracy, uh, just as the West believes. Uh, so on these points... Uh, they're agreed with those polled in Western countries. And while the Mid Middle Eastern Muslims disagree on how much religious extremism has contributed to their problems, they, you know, when they are asked if uh, Middle Eastern extremism is, is a, a large contributor to the, how th things are in the Middle East, they, they don't tend to think that it's a huge contributor. Uh, they do think there should be less uh, religious extremism, mostly because they think religious extremism introduces a lot of violence uh, mm, and insta yeah. instability into uh, their situation. But they don't place very much blame on religious extremism for their situation. Uh, who th but these same Muslim respondents seem to hold the West e either partially or mostly responsible for the situation in, in the Middle East. And this seems, in the final analysis, to be the most significant disagreement between the Western narrative and the Middle Eastern Muslim narrative as it's uh, as it's kind of described in this report. The two sides can mostly agree upon where things are uh, and what, kind of, what will fix things, but they vary widely in terms of how the Middle East got to where it is. And so I, because of that, um, uh, the Middle East, you know, as a, as a group, uh, and the West, I think they end up coming up with very different solutions for a lot yeah, of these, yeah. a lot of these problems. So, um, so we're going to spend most of our time um, looking at that particular story of how the Middle East came to be where it is. Um, it, it, really, the story of how a region of the world that was the cradle of civilization uh, it produced uh, three. Uh, Roman emperors, uh, I think, uh, and it was a bastion of art and science in the Middle Ages, but today it's perceived by outsiders as a political and cultural wasteland, although I'll point out that it is definitely not a cultural wasteland. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. but, but, but while we were asking this question, um, the book that you mentioned, um, that really became a, a major source, uh, and it's going to be a major source in the things we discussed, but uh, um, I I want to let our listeners know, as you do, that we're not experts in um, the field of Middle Eastern uh, history or politics. Um, 
we're drawing uh, most of what uh, we're going to talk about from from other sources. Uh, our interest is mostly about these stories and narratives that, that we've been talking about, and that mm. will be a, a recurring theme. Now, um, now, where does the story start exactly? Uh, where does uh, Anderson's narrative pick up in terms of when all this started, uh, when the, uh, the kind of the conflict between the, the Middle East and the West started and these, these uh, narratives that we're now very familiar with started to, uh, started to emerge? Um, well, I, I guess um, I would say he's not interest. Well, he's primarily talking about um, three main figures, and he traces them: one's a uh, German, one's T. E. Lawrence, and one's uh, an American who worked for Standard Oil. But um, I think going back for a second to where it starts, I would say that um, in looking a little bit at um, the one of the figures, uh, Aaron Aronson, um, helps get at where it starts because Aaron Aronson is um, a Jewish agronomist who's working under the Ottoman Empire, um, and he's also a major um, proponent of uh, a Jewish homeland, and he wants one of the reasons this starts to come about the idea of having a Jewish homeland is because the Ottoman Empire at this time is beginning to break apart um, under some of the pressures of uh, nationalism in Europe. And one of the things right now, nationalism. We should probably point out that nationalism is was is kind of something that was. Uh, you know, some people go back to uh, the French Revolution and the American Revolution that these things really kind of started a nationalistic right, uh, right. wave across Europe uh, that eventually hit the um, uh, Middle East and and uh, and the the reason the reason that nationalism in particular uh, was undermining the Ottoman Empire is it might relate a little bit to how the Ottoman Empire was kind of run. Yes, I mean, yeah, would, yeah. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Do you want to say a few things about oh, that? You were yeah, going the, to talk the about the millet system. Right. Um, uh, the, uh, the Ottoman Empire and, and most of what we consider the Middle East today was uh, under the rule of the Ottoman Empire, uh, ran according to a, a political system that's often referred to as the uh, millet system. Um, and it, it was, it's really fascinating how this worked. Uh, in fact, I'm going to refer to uh, William Polk, uh, who served on JFK State Department's uh, policy planning staff, and he's been writing some insightful analysis for The Atlantic regarding uh, the recent crisis in Syria. And in his September 16th offering, he talks a bit about the millet system uh, of governing, and uh, I'm going to refer uh, to him for a couple reasons. Uh, one, because I think he does a good job of describing what the millet system was like, and uh, also because he says interesting things about why the millet system wouldn't work today, because mm. the reason he brings it up is because he's talking about how Syria can't go back to this. Um, so I'm going to I'm going to read uh, from what he says here uh, under quote under the Ottoman Empire, what is now Syria was divided into provinces. Uh, the Ottoman system was politically, ethnically, and religiously permissive in ways that are alien of modern statecraft. 
In the four centuries of Ottoman rule, each community ran its own affairs with the state interfering only to ensure the collection of taxes. Contribution by individuals to the community tax was levied by the leaders or councils of each community, not by the government. Moreover, what happened inside each community was considered its rather than the empire's affair. And um, and that's uh, I, I skipped a few things he said there, but that, that was all from his article. And uh, these communities that he's talking about were based al- along religious and ethnic lines. Uh, so as he says, Jews ran Jewish schools. You know, right, Christians, right. Christians ran Christian schools. Um, and uh, I'll start uh, quoting him again. Each community took care of its own health needs and generally administered its own law and custom. That lax system of government is mandated in the Quran. Um, but then he goes, he continues, uh, but after the imposition of the Western concept of the state, such community structure is only a distant memory. Moreover, even the religious fundamentalists and certainly the more radical insurgents apparently no longer feel governed by the Quranic injunction to allow non-Muslims to live by their own codes and in peace. Okay, so so there's two things I want uh, us to point out here. First of all, the whole reason we bring up the millet system is because as we were saying before, as Jazz was saying before, nationalism um, was coming into the Middle East. And the reason that it was a particular threat to the Ottoman system is, as you can imagine, with the Ottoman system sort of, the, the, the upper level of government is kind of hands off and, and local religious and ethnic communities are kind of doing their own thing. If a nationalist sentiment comes into one of these uh, religious or ethnic groups, Mm. Then, then that's, you know, the other groups are going to see that that group wants their particular brand of ethnicity or religion or whatever to define the whole nation. Right, right, right. And so, so that's why the the nationalistic idea was particularly destabilizing for the Ottoman Empire. And and by the uh, by the turn of the twentieth uh, 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 century, um, it, the Ottoman uh, system had already been significantly challenged by this uh, nationalist uh, um, uh, sentiment going on. But I also wanted to point out something interesting that uh, William Polk says here. Uh, he he sort of uh, I think what he's kind of saying is that the 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 millet system can't come back, but it's not because it couldn't work. I mean, it worked for over four hundred years. It's because it no longer fits in the narrative, which mm, again, that's, right, that's right. the kind of, that's the kind of thing we're talking about in this show and in, and in the podcast series as a whole is that, um, uh, and jazz, uh, um, I, uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong here. You can tell me what you think, but I'm pretty certain if I took this system, the Ottoman system, the millet system out of its historical context and just went out on the street and told people about it and asked them if some uh, system like this would work, they would tell me it couldn't possibly work, and they might even go so far to say that that human the laws of human nature prohibit it. Right, um, right. Because which? Yeah, I think there's this. We now have this very top-down model, um, so we don't we can't imagine a model that's um, where you have a central government, but the central government is doing as little as is, as it was doing in the millet system. Right, and I. But interesting to me is that that if you, as you say, people can't imagine it. But if you if you describe it to them so they can't imagine it, 
they'll often come up with reasons that won't work that are tied to perhaps their own beliefs about, you know, what they think scientifically is true about humanity, which obviously can't be scientifically true about humanity, or else it would never have worked, but it did work for over 400 years. And, and more to the point, uh, more relevant, I think, to what we're talking about is, if you ask them, well, could a system like this work in the Middle East? They'd say the Middle East would prove this is proof that a system like that <laughs> couldn't possibly work. And yet that is exactly where the system worked for over 400 years. So um, this is uh, this is the kind of thing that Jazz and I are talking about with stories. It, it's not, again, it's not just that it's it's a philosophy or an ideology or 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 a story that that um, that people tell to influence other people. These stories actually put limits uh, on how we perceive reality. They put limits on what we think is even possible. Uh, and and that's why it's uh, we think that it's helpful to think about these stories because uh, sometimes as we talk about them and as we tell each other these stories and as we see the stories that were told in the past or that are told by other cultures, we can start to realize how the stories that we're used to have, have limited us. Right, right. But but getting back to this thing, so so the millet system was uh, particularly vulnerable to this nationalistic uh, uh, wave, and um, uh, it was particularly destabilizing to the uh, Ottoman Empire. And so, uh, sorry to, to no, <laughs> get no. off on a tangent there, Jazz, and to no, digress. No, that's, that's good, um, because I, well, I think it fits, um, because going back to um, what was going on in uh, the Ottoman Empire at the time, this is around 1908 you had the uh, the group who was later referred to as the Young Turks uh, they were military officers um, they came into power and they forced uh, the Sultan to bring back a parliamentary constitution um, and they wanted to fight for things like the emancipation of women and rights for religious minorities. But they started to get this backlash from um, conservative forces in the Ottoman Empire and also from outside uh, the Ottoman Empire from Europe. They were also getting a lot of uh, backlash. And in order to try to unify the country, um, they sort of went in three contradictory directions. They tried to institute modernism, so they were bringing in railroads, for instance. Uh, they mm, wanted, right, right. Uh, and actually bringing in the railroads was one of the things that um, upset um, Ali Hussein, uh, who um, plays a big role. He was the leader of the Hashemites, and he played a, a big role in this whole story. His sons later become uh, king of Syria and the king of Jordan. Um, but so he was upset that that bringing in of the train was going to um, take away his local power. Mm. That was one of the things that didn't work. But they were also calling for a pan-Turkish unity. So Turks outside of the empire and a defense of Islam. So instead of unifying the country, this gave all these different groups that had been working under the millet system something to be afraid of and 
to generate hatred of others. Like, right. if, if I, you know, for defending Islam, what's going to happen to the Jews and the Muslims <laughs> that are within the empire? What, right. How is this going and, to affect us? And pan-Turkish unity is is going to threaten the Arabs and right, right, and exactly. the other ethnic groups, right? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so all of that was destabilizing the empire, and um, just getting back to Aaron Aronson for a moment, um, they saw at first um, there was this movement among the Zionists to maybe buy up land in the area and just bring in uh, Jewish immigrants to try to establish this homeland. But as they see the empire starting to destabilize, um, they have this idea that instead, if they ally themselves with European forces, that after World War I, if the European forces are successful... Um, it'll be the European forces who will establish uh, a homeland for them. And they, event- they eventually do um, ally themselves with the British, but there's all kinds of maneuvering that goes on um, before that, which, again, I was very surprised by. Um, in fact, uh, Germany, um, the German newspapers, are also advocating for a Jewish homeland, which huh. I'm reading that thinking... Really? No, yeah, that's that's <laughs> and, very surprising. Yeah, and the reason is because they're trying they're also trying to play in this propaganda war with uh the Entente powers that is uh British and France and Russia and who's going to get uh international jewelry on their side and also eventually they they want to get the Americans in the um the British want to get the Americans in, so they're trying to play to uh, Jewish groups in America to try to to get them to put pressure on the United States to enter. Enter so, the war. So, so, so to 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 be seen on the international international stage as helping Jews uh, achieve their goals. That was actually that was a that was a coveted spot. Yeah, that you was wanted- a propaganda. Yeah. That was a coveted spot to be in. Which again, you're sort of like, wow, really? (laughs) Yeah, that 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 really that really bends the consciousness a little bit because, you know what, what you're familiar with is is the intense anti-Semitism that that runs through Europe really clear up until World War II, and 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 yes, there's definitely not that that isn't going on too. No, that's right. It is going on. It definitely is going on during that same time. But but for some reason, somehow. It it was uh, a politically popular thing to be supporting the uh, the Zionists. How did that work? I mean, why was that? Well, as I said, because you wanted to get uh, the Jewish people within a particular country on one side or the other. Oh, I but, see. Okay. But I should also say that um, uh, this was another thing that was surprising to me was that um, Zionism there was actually a whole contingent of um, of Jewish people who opposed the idea of establishing a Jewish homeland and were against the Zionist cause. Uh, they were referred to generally as assimilationists, 
and they okay. sometimes they sometimes labeled the Zionists as anti-Semitic because they thought that by uh, stirring up this idea of a Jewish homeland, that this would stir uh, Jewish conspiracy theories. <laughs> wow! And so they they didn't want to have a Jewish homeland. They wanted uh, people to um, assimilate into whatever country they were in. Okay, now uh, I'm thinking about as I'm listening to you saying all of this. Even though it it's really surprising and it and it goes against a lot of the things that uh, that we tend we tend to expect. Uh, on, on another level, it seems so plausible that things would be this complex. Right. Exactly. Do you know what I'm sa- saying? I mean, I mean, as you're telling this story, uh, and and I'm surprised by some of the things you're saying. I'm also realizing why is this surprising? It, it this makes sense that things would be this complex. And frankly, even today, things are probably this complex. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's not just. I'm getting the sense that something about our modern narratives. It's not just that um, we're not. Uh, getting the whole story, we're getting a, a an oversimplified story, and we start to expect things to be simple. We start to expect things to be somewhat black and white. We, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, and that becomes a sort of a filter through which we consume our media or or hear stories. And I, I think we've sort of disconnected ourselves from a world where things really, it's not they weren't just more complicated back then. They're probably still really really complicated. It's amazing. It's amazing how we're programmed to not to think in terms of very simple, you know. What I'm saying yeah. clear lines and, and a small group of players with and and everyone with, who with everyone who, has the same motive. That's yeah, right, right, right. In this group, and they, yeah, that's right. The, there that's aren't right. Sort of, there's not infighting going on within the group. I think one of the one of the most interesting stories in the book uh, was the way in which um, Scott Anderson connects up the kind of infighting um, in Britain between um, British Cairo, British Egypt, and British India, um, which he eventually traces to uh, the emergence of Osama bin Laden, um, because he says that um, while T.E. Lawrence and the British in Egypt were pushing for this Arab revolt in order to um, aid the British in the Ottoman Empire. Um, the British in India saw the idea of an Arab revolt as really threatening because they had oh, right. this large Muslim. They had the yeah. largest Muslim population at the time. Right, right, right. Um, so the idea that that Arabs or Muslims would seek independence they were not crazy about this idea at all Um, so they um, while Lawrence was backing uh, the Hashemites and the Hussein family um, the British in India published this uh, report to discredit uh, Sharif Ali Hussein who's the Hashemite leader um, who who T. Lawrence was helping. Yeah. Um, and they, um, in order to do this, they published this interview with Ibn Saud, 
which discredits Hussein and Ibn Saud was the leader of a rival um, to uh, Ali Hussein. And Lawrence warned against supporting Ibn Saud. Um, he's, in response to the intelligence bulletin, Lawrence said, because Ibn Saud was uh, from the Wahhabist um, group, Okay. And he says about them, the Wahhabists have all the narrow-minded bigotry of the Puritan, and if it, that is Wahhabism, prevailed, we would have in place of the tolerant, rather comfortable Islam of Mecca and Damascus, that is the people, um, the Hashemites, the fanaticism of Najid, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, And... Ibn Saud eventually, after World War I, uh, becomes the ruler of Saudi Arabia. And Anderson says that the Saudi royal family retained its power by buying off the Wahhabists, the extremists, within its area by having them take their extremism elsewhere rather than having it within the country and that the most quote, the most famous product of this arrangement is Osama bin Laden. Right. Okay, so uh, let me let me get this straight. Uh, the, the British sent in Lawrence um, to uh, work with some uh, uh, Arabs living in the Ottoman Empire to, to sort of uh, weaken the Ottoman Empire in World War I. But, but the um, the uh, British in India felt threatened by this whole uh, scenario. So they put this uh, plan in place to discredit the, uh, the group that uh, Lawrence was working with. Right. This story is full of behind-the-back <laughs> deals <laughs> being made. Um, uh, probably the, the most central one. And then this has a lot to do, going back to the... Uh, Pew Research Report because of, I mean, the idea of uh, is it, where does Islamic fundamentalism come from and why isn't there democracy Hmm. in the Middle East and uh, do Western policies have anything to do with that and um, just uh, going from there was a central policy that got made uh, in 1916, in the middle of the war, the Sykes-Picot Agreement, which was basically an agreement between um, Britain and France that they would divide up um, the area so that France would have Syria and uh, Britain would have Iraq after the war. And there'd be these other areas that uh, some the Allies, like uh, the Arabs, would have, but they'd still be under... British or French administration. Okay, now hold on a second. This agreement is going on while uh, Britain is sending Lawrence in and telling the Arabs that he's helping them uh, liberate um, themselves from Ottoman rule? Right, so that they'll have an Arab state. So they're promising the Arabs that they're going to, after the war, that this Arab state will be established. But they're actually dividing up the area in this other agreement with France. Oh, man. Oh, now, wait a minute, though. Didn't you also say that, that uh, 
European powers, including Britain, were sort of competing with each other to be the ones to promise that the that there'd be a Jewish state. Yeah, that's that's also true. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> and um, but okay, so actually, <laughs> so you know, all there are all these deals going on, and. Um, that agreement, so Lawrence finds out about that agreement, as, as did a uh, number of other British in Egypt, and he told uh, Faisal Hussein, which... Okay, wait, he, he didn't know before he went? No, no, no. This this happens while he's there. In the oh, middle okay, I'm sorry, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Um, so he finds out about it, and then he tells uh, Faisal Hussein which would have been an act of treason if it had been known at the time. But yeah. he, he doesn't think that it's fair that they're negotiating with these kind of false principles. Um, wow. And, oh, Anderson also says that uh, Europe generally referred to the Middle East um, at this period in World War One as the great loot. They saw it as what their reward was going to be after... The war was over. This is the, this is where they were going to get all their the reward for all the uh, people that had been killed and all the resources that had been put into the war. Um, now, see, that's an interesting thing right there too. I think uh, you were talking to me about this earlier about how how it, it seemed like in this war, and I think Anderson mentions this. Uh, you were saying before uh, in this war that the the worse it was, the worse it, the more people who that were killed, and there were lots of people killed because, you know, you know we're using a whole different type of warfare now in, in World War One, and it, and and the the loss of life is immense. The more people are lost, uh, the more stubborn people get in wanting to see the war go their way. Yeah, because, yeah. Because they want to feel like it was worth something. Actually, I think uh, I think I actually heard uh, Anderson saying this in that. Uh, uh, interview uh, yes. yeah. that he was I doing. I say that too. Yeah. Um, yeah, World War I, um, he talks about, was very different, as you were saying, because the it was the first war in which both sides had uh, mechanized war, uh, weapons of war. Mm. And mm-hmm. um, before that time, in fact, the, the Europeans thought the war was going to end really quickly, or Britain and France thought the war was going to be over really quickly because their previous experience had been using um, weapons of war on people. The weapons of war they had, which were machine guns and artillery shells, they were using those on people who didn't have them. Oh, Um, right, right, sure. And uh, Anderson cites... um, one of the things Lord Kitchener said, he was Secretary of State for War, and he had overseen a battle in the Sudan in 1898 in which 47 British were killed and 10,000 of the enemy, and the battle was ah. over in one day. Wow. So this is what they were expecting in mm. World War One, mm. And then... He was only he was one of the few people who actually realized that it wasn't going to be like that, and he said, um, "It will not end until we have plumbed our manpower to the last million." Uh, and the yeah, the costs were enormous, um, 
and partly it was how they fought too and and one of the stories I can take out of that is that you they that you get into a mindset of this is how you wage war yeah right and it makes me think about the way the United States is a military superpower now and goes into a war thinking oh it's going to be over so quickly um, because we're so much we outman the other side um uh, Andrew Basevich uh, has been talking about this recently and talks about how every war we've fought recently in the Middle East we we haven't succeeded in because we've gotten into this mindset that we can solve every problem with our military because the military is so powerful, where in fact right. we can't do that. Right. Uh, he also says in, uh, in a uh, September 16th interview on Moyers and Company, um, he's talking to Phil Donahue in that interview. Uh, he also uh, indicates that um, that the the United States government uses a narrative of stabilization, uh, liberation, transformation, <laughs> all of right. these narratives about how we can have an impact on the, the Middle East and why we go in there to do things in the Middle East, but. Uh, but he suspects these uh, narratives are just cynical manipulations of the American people and of, of U.S. troops, too, Yeah, uh, yeah. for that matter. Yeah. Um, this, uh, this, though, leads to an interesting thing about um, uh, Lawrence's uh, unique and perhaps unexpected qualifications to go into uh, Syria and help out uh, the rebels there in terms of you know, doing warfare because he came, he came yeah. at warfare with a, with a, with a quite a different narrative and that ended up uh, serving him well. Isn't that right? Yeah. Well, he was in the Middle East uh, originally. He wasn't there as a soldier at all. Um, he was there on an archeological dig um, because he studied medieval military architecture and strategy. And the first time he goes around Syria, and he, he did this walking tour of Syria. He decided to do this as a teenager, and everybody told him he was insane. Um, <laughs> but um, he was uniquely fitted, as you were saying, to give advice about how to fight in the area because um, you can't really use trench warfare in the Middle East. Um, the kind of warfare that worked, which he used was one based on much more feudal uh, strategies because you had to think about what resources were in the area, especially water, and you couldn't bring in huge numbers of troops. You had to recruit troops from the area you were in. Right. Uh, again, because there, if you had huge numbers of troops, you'd have to have supplies, um, again, especially water. So that's why he was really uh, fitted to um, strategize in this way to try to um, bring about this Arab revolt or or help the Arabs in this revolt. Um, but it also helped him see the narrative in a different way than everybody yeah. else was seeing it. Yeah. But unfortunately, uh, even though he, he saw the narrative... Uh, differently and in, a, and in a way that made him very effective in what he was doing, oftentimes when he tried to convince his uh, 
superiors that, hey, I, I've got the right beat on this and you kind of need to listen yeah. to what I'm saying here, that they didn't listen and usually uh, with disastrous results, right? I mean, yeah, yeah he was trying to, uh, this is before his most famous um, exploit, which was to the bat, um, the battle for Aqaba. But before Aqaba, he was advocating that the uh, the British attack Alexandretta, because Alexandretta was an area in which um, there were diverse groups: Arabs, Armenians, other people who he felt if they could just get there, um, they'd start coming over to their side, and mm. you you would foment this rebellion. But instead. Uh, the British decided to attack um, at the Dardanelles, also known as Gallipoli. Yes, right. And that was, I I had heard of Gallipoli, but I did not realize how horrendous a mistake that was <laughs> until I read this. And, and it's really, really tragic. Um, yeah. They tried to land at this area. Um, and again, they're they're using that kind of mechanized warfare strategy, trench warfare strategy, and um, they land there, and they think that or their first um, their first objective, I think, is to take this village that's about four miles inland, and that's what they were supposed to do the first day. And after seven months, they hadn't reached that village. And a quarter wow. of a million men were dead. And um, Anderson says that um, they had to call these truces every once in a while to collect the dead because the enemy was only about 30 yards away. So you couldn't even collect the dead. There were so many of them. Wow. Okay, so not to change the subject too abruptly here, but um, in terms of the uh, uh, relationship between... Um, Britain and France and how they were going to carve up the Middle East and everything. Uh, that's not really the end of that story either, is it? Even though the British and French were allied and they had carved up this area, going back to the what you were saying about that they had also made this promise of a Jewish homeland, right, right. Um, uh, Sykes of the Sykes-Picot Agreement has this idea a few months after the Sykes-Picot Agreement has been signed, that um, if he forwards the idea of a Jewish homeland in Palestine, that because the Jews don't like the French and absolutely will have nothing to do with the Russians or the two other allies, then that mean that means that joint control of Palestine will go to the British. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, so that's one reason why he's um, advocating for the the Jewish homeland because that'll make the British the rulers or the administrators in Palestine. Just when you think it it can't get deeper, it does. <laughs> but you know that that's another thing. Um, I I don't want us to um, gloss over some of the other things that you've told me about uh, with all of this because. Because there are some really interesting, complex things going on here that I think also, uh, while they don't, um, you know, the, the grander narrative here is how uh, the Middle East was kind of um, uh, 
lied to and manipulated and, and bullied in a way into uh, a situation that I think most people can see logically leads us to where we are today. But there were a lot of other things going on uh, like that uh, have an impact on the founding of, of the Jewish state. Um, you mentioned uh, to me in earlier conversations about uh, William Henry Yale and Standard Oil and, and all of these things. Um, so um, I guess what I'm interested to know, uh, what else was happening with uh, Aaron Aronson, because you were mentioning him earlier, um, and I, I don't think that uh, you finished telling his story. This was another interesting thing, thinking in the book about all these, the ways in which unintended things like uh, the weather and the environment can can be part of what happens. We talked a little bit about that and talking about water as a resource. Right. But uh, Aronson, as I said, was an agronomist, um, also hoping to start a Jewish homeland. And um, being an agronomist was one of the ways that he uh, was thinking about bringing about the establishment of a Jewish homeland there by, he, he had visited California and he had seen the way in which California had been changed through irrigation. Oh, so right, sure. he was trying, he was thinking about using similar methods mm-hmm. to make areas of the desert uh, more arable. Okay. Um, and he sets up this uh, scientific research station um and he's working under the Turks, and then in, um, I believe it's 1915 or 16, there's this huge locust infestation. There's a plague. Mm. Um, uh, it's so bad that they cite that one of the swarms was a mile by seven miles long. Wow. And um, the the people are t- told by... Uh, the Turkish government, they have to bring in 40 pounds of eggs. Men, women, and children have to, to turn in 40 pounds of eggs, which just gives you an idea of how much there was. Yeah, there. right. And um, Aronson gets appointed to be inspector general um, to go around to all of these areas and try to help clear them of the locust infestation. Um and by doing that, by having that power, uh, he actually begins this spy ring within the Ottoman Empire um, as an agronomist, as someone who can go to all these villages. Um, then he uh, eventually leaves the Ottoman Empire for Egypt and Cairo, and he leaves his members of his family are left behind running the spy ring. The person who's uh, in charge of the spy ring is his sister, Sarah. And um, towards the end of the war, the spy ring is uncovered, and um, they go to the village where Aronson's family was from, and they arrest her and his father, And um, but they can't believe that... Uh, Sarah Aronson could be the head of the spy ring because she's a woman. Okay, right. And um, 
So they spend days and days torturing her, trying to get her to reveal the whereabouts of the head of the spy ring. Wow. And um, they don't, they're not successful, and they're about to lead her away to prison, and uh, she asks to go change clothes, and when they uh, leave her alone in her room, she has a gun hidden away, and she takes it and she kills herself. Wow. Wow, what a story. Yeah. Um, and while that's going on, actually, Aronson is with Chaim Weizmann, who um, is the other person who's probably the, the most influential Zionist, and they are um, in New York trying to talk about um, the establishment of Jewish homeland. So he doesn't even hear about this till months later and then Weizmann becomes eventually the first president of Israel but the book also talks about the fact that he also had a sister who was a spy but she was a spy for the Germans which seems really strange wow. um, but she was in the Ottoman Empire and they had escaped from Russia and the, the Jewish groups that were coming from Russia tended to be uh, secularist and had socialist um, beliefs. Okay. And they had this really very strong anti-Russian, of course, because they had been... Uh, um, they had faced the pogroms, the czarist pogroms. Right, sure. Um, so that's what they're escaping from. And so this German, who's the head of counterintelligence in the Ottoman Empire, decides that would be a good place to go to um, try to enlist spies for a spy network in the Ottoman Empire is these um, Russian Jewish emigres. Because, and this is also a weird turn of events, um, <laughs> Because once war ha was declared, the Russian Jews in the Ottoman Empire were now uh, designated as um, uh, belligerent nationals. So they were leaving the country, and most of them were going to Egypt. So he thought, okay, I'll get some of these people whose alliances will be against Russia, so they'll be against the Entente of Russia, Britain, and France, they're being shipped to Egypt anyway, which is a British holding. So I'll get some of those people, and I'll get this spy ring going. And one of the so, people that so he wait, enlists, even, even though technically they're getting kicked out. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> yes. Kicked out of the Ottoman Empire, they'll, they'll still spy uh, on the British for them. Right, because their feelings against the Russians are going to be so strong. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, wow. And that worked. For some of them, it worked. So wow. Mina, Mina Weizmann was one of the, uh, the spies uh, enlisted by the German, whose name is Kurt Prufer, and she becomes his lover, although after she's shipped to Egypt, that ends. Um, and she works briefly there. I think she was discovered fairly early. But the fact that she was working for the Germans and the Ottomans, and then her brother goes on to become the first president of Israel 
and her former lover, Kurt Prufer, went on to become a leading figure in the SS in World War II. Wow. <laughs> I mean, you can't make this stuff up. I know. It's like, this would make a great movie. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose it has already been. Yeah, maybe you know, Lawrence has. of Arabia was like, one of the movies. We should we should take time for you said you wanted to get back to what the what the final resolution yeah, after the war it, was and I think we should talk fits about that into it, it continues with what we were talking okay. about how complicated the relationships are because the end of the war comes and there are these peace treaties being negotiated and uh, one of the things that Lawrence does uh, by the way the the Sykes Pico agreement by this time had been annulled. It had been made public and it wasn't holding anymore. So okay. Lawrence was thinking, okay, I don't really have to uh, worry about the Sykes Pico agreement anymore. But he's still thinking that there has to be, there's, there's got to be a way of putting pressure on the British to follow through on their promises to. Um, Faisal Hussein in particular. So he arranges a meeting between Faisal Hussein and Chaim Weizmann, who is the person I was just talking about, Mina Weizmann's brother, who becomes the first president of Israel. Right. And so they have this uh, meeting, and they make this agreement that they're going to trade um, Faisal Hussein's support for a Jewish state in Palestine um, for Haim Weizmann's Zionist support for an independent Arab state in Syria. Unfortunately, that whole thing fell apart because when uh, Hussein went to meet with, well, behind the scenes, the British and the French, here uh, Lloyd, Lloyd George and Clemenceau, had met and they, again, they'd split the areas between the British and French, probably in a way that was even worse than the Sykes-Picot agreement. Oh, wow. So Hussein and... Faisal Hussein and Lawrence go to this meeting with General Allenby in which they're going to talk about what Hussein is going to be given. And instead of being given the Syria that he thought he was going to get to establish an independent Arab state, it's this sort of reduced land area that they're calling Syria, but uh, the whole um, coastlines being taken out of it. So Syria will now become a landlocked nation, which it was not before. And uh, he's not really going to be in charge. It's not going to be an independent Arab state. It's going to be under the guidance of France. Wow. Um, and And Lawrence was so disgusted by this that after that meeting, he asked to be relieved of his duties, and he, he left. He went back to England. He never went to the Middle East again. He never saw wow. uh, Faisal Hussein again. He was just like... <laughs> I think it was also because he was probably by that time suffering from post-traumatic shock disorder. Oh, a lot, I see. Of, a lot sure. of things had happened to him, um, and he had he had gone b- from being somebody who was fairly careful about um, 
loss of life to being totally um, callous about it. Mm. Um, so then, uh, because Faisal had entered in a, into a partnership with the Zionists, he's denounced by Ibn Saud and the Wahhabists as, you know, being this traitor to Islam. And sure. then he tried to come to some accommodation with the French in Syria, but when he went to Damascus, he was denounced as a traitor because of the fact that he was trying to uh, come to accommodation with the French. So then, wow! In the, so then, instead, he renounces the French, and then he tries to uh, attempt this coup to take over Syria, and it's completely unsuccessful. And uh, the French remain in Syria, and the British, who are in Iraq, make Faisal the king of Iraq instead. Um, but it's still not an independent Arab state. It's British controlled. And Faisal's younger brother, who was on the border of Syria and, and was threatening to attack, um, he was given Transjordan, which is now called Jordan. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can talk about the later history if you like, but there was also this quotation that I found which was really interesting. This was right after World War I. Uh, the first Earl of Crewe, who was the Secretary of State for the Colonies in Britain, said, What we want is not a united Arabia, but a disunited Arabia, split into principalities under our suzerainty. I don't know how to say that word, actually. S-U-Z-E-R-A-I-N-T-Y. But it means under their their overlordship. Yeah, right. They're the ones who are controlling things. Right. But then, brief history of, of what happens is that um, in the 30s, uh, there were Arab revolts in Palestine, yeah. and then the British were eventually ousted by Jewish guerrilla forces um, after World War II from Palestine. Yep. Uh, French were forced out of Syria in 1946, but uh, they remained in Lebanon uh, for a while, and then the pro-Western democracy in Syria was uh, ousted by a military coup, and the French government in Lebanon eventually gave way to civil war. And in 1952, the British rule in Egypt ended with the kind of military takeover by Nasser. And in 1958, there was a military coup in Iraq, which ended the pro-Western monarchy that was established by Faisal. So but you, these are just the dominoes falling when you Yeah, think about yeah, it. that's just the after effects of all of this. And um so so I guess uh, the upshot of this is when when um you know, according to the the Pew research um uh people in the Middle East blame the West for their problems. Well, this is the kind of stuff they're talking about. Yes, yes. Uh, they're not just they're not just pointing a finger because that's we're the what, great Satan or something. Yeah, that's what people do. No, no, this is the kind of thing. And of course, other things that most of us uh, are, are you know are more in recent memory. You know, propping up Saddam Hussein. Uh, 
you know, during the war between Iraq and Iran, but or the Shah of Iran, exactly. Uh, you know, it, it's in in my observation, it, it's not that. While while according to the research, uh, most Americans think that it's it's the Middle Eastern uh, it's the Middle Easterner's own fault. Um, I don't think. If they asked, if anyone were to ask these Middle Easterners who think it's the West fault, well, well, why do you say that? If they gave a list of all the things that have happened and that the West has done, I don't think anyone would disagree that those things happened. I don't think anyone would say, oh, well, you're just making that stuff up or, <laughs> oh, well, that's that's a, a liberal reconstruction of history. I mean, I think everybody would agree that these things actually happened. I think, I think what the West uh, kind of denies is the impact of it. Uh, True, that, but I, uh, <clears throat> I wonder how many people really know the history. Very well, and that's so. that's another thing is that uh, a lot of people don't know. And another thing that I was – well, I guess this isn't very surprising, but after World War I, <clears throat> the Arabs, the, the group of people that they saw most on their side, the people they were most pro was Americans. Um, because America hadn't been part of this whole fiasco of, um, you know, America was so much not a superpower at that time, but right. on their way to being. Um, but then we, t- we just sort of took the place of, of Britain and France and the other imperial powers in lots of ways. Now, we still haven't heard anything about William Henry Yale and Standard Oil, so why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about them? William Henry Yale is an American who is working for uh, Standard Oil of New York um, in the Ottoman Empire. And the Turks thought that he was there in order to develop oil production for them, for the war effort. Um he, on the other hand, is there to get oil concessions for after the war is over. Um, and I think he and Standard Oil are assuming that uh, the Ottoman Empire is going to be no more. But they're not planning on developing the oil for the Turks during the war. Um, anyway, after uh, America gets into the war, he, of course, has to leave the Ottoman Empire and he gets a job with the State Department and returns to the Middle East as a representative of the State Department. But the State Department doesn't know that he's still working for Standard Oil, um, and he's having his paychecks sent um, in care of his mother so that this doesn't become well known. Uh, we could probably go on for hours and hours and hours, Jazz, as we <laughs> as we used to do. As but, is our won't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, um, I think it's been, uh, especially after we're done uh, editing uh, our conversation here, as as we'll do for um, for time's sake. Uh, it's getting about uh, it's getting over an hour here, so we probably should wrap up. Um, I just want to tell everybody. Um, if you have any uh, comments about the show or if you have uh, any insights to share or if you have uh, any topics that you'd like us uh, to cover, 
uh, you can let us know in uh, the comments. Uh, I'm going to sort of preemptively, though, let people know that uh, the uh, the site that's hosting uh, our podcast at the moment um, seems to be having trouble with comments. So I'll put a link in there to our main website, our main Ether Theater website, so that you can get to the forums and make comments there if the comment section in our actual podcast uh, isn't working. But we definitely want your feedback. Uh, any suggestions to make the show better or just uh, your own thoughts on the topic because we we would love to engage in a conversation with you in comments or in the forums. Uh, But also we are interested to know what kinds of topics you'd maybe uh, like us to cover. Um, Jazz, was there anything else you wanted to say uh, uh, before we leave our listeners? No, I think I... I think we covered everything that I wanted to talk about. I'm well, sure I'll think of something oh, like an hour from now. Yes, I know. We'll always think of something. But um, I want to thank everybody for listening. Jazz, I want to thank yeah, you thank for you. for uh, getting together today. And um, we'll uh, see you next time on Grapevine. Grapevine is a production of Aether Theater. Music is provided by Chris Snook.